please stand with me. I'll be reading John 16, 5 through 7. But now I'm going away to the one who sent me, but none of you are going to be asking me where I'm going. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. But in this fact, this is better for you if I go away, because if I don't, the advocate will not come. But if I do go away, I will send him to you. All right, you can be seated, and we're going to dismiss our children to Children's Church. If you've got a four-year-old to a third grader, they want a lesson of their own, they are welcome to join Casey on their way out the door. They'll come back before the end of the service. And if you have a Bible, um, either, um, either a book or a device, go ahead and turn that on or open it up um, to Matthew chapter 16. We'll get back to John in a few minutes. Matthew 16. It seems um, that... It seems that I've been preparing the sermon for about four months. And I didn't know it, really. Um, all year long, and even back in December, we, um, we got hooked into a theme, a one-word theme. Um, what's it say? With. Both screens. And this big thing down here that weighs 300 pounds. Um, it's all metal and wood. And we made it last Christmas, um, last uh, December, as a way of reminding us that Jesus is with us. Emmanuel, you know, the whole Christmas thing, God with us. And we spent four weeks talking about how Jesus is with us. And, and that just merged into 2019 and a journey of teaching and Bible that underlines the entirety of Scripture, just says and screams all the time, God is with us. God is with us. Jesus is with us. The Spirit is with us. And this, if you want, here's the cliff notes. Here's how I would write them of the entire Bible. I mean, some people, and when I, when I grab a Bible, it, sometimes, you know, you get into parts of it and you're thinking, I don't know what this is talking about. I can't understand what he's saying. I don't get it. Well, here's the gist. Ready? God is with you. I know, it's disappointing, isn't it? I mean, you, don't, you expected more than that, didn't you? But here's, here's the thing. The journey that God and humanity took, beginning in the Garden of Eden, beginning before even that, when God, in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. And that's Genesis 1.1. A lot of us know that one, but do you know the second verse? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. God is with his creation. And he made man and woman in his own image, in his own likeness, and he put them in place, he put them in a place of perfection. In a garden, so to speak. Eden. Where there was no sin, there was no shame, there was no separation between God and his people, his creation. until sin entered the world. 
until the man and woman decided that their version of what was right and wrong was more important than what God's version of right and wrong was. And then there was separation between God and his creation. The earth was cursed. Man and woman each got their own consequence. And even in that bad news scenario, there was a good news promise that the seed of the woman, the descendant of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent. But the serpent would bruise the heel. And so God, all throughout what we call the Old Testament, was gaining traction, getting closer and closer and closer to his people. There was, there was this thing called the tabernacle that, that, that he had uh, Moses build. And he met with Moses in the center of this tent place, this tent of meeting. And then when there was this temple that was built, this grand temple of Solomon... Same scenario, same um, floor plan, basically. But God's presence went into the Holy of Holies, where one priest, one time a year, would go in and meet with, with God to atone for the sins of the people. But in that scenario, God was still with his people, but he was still kind of distant. He couldn't get too close, or he'd fry them. You know, that's that holiness factor. But then came Jesus, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law. And God is with us. And Jesus grew up as one of us. And he talked with people, and he healed them, and he taught them, and he touched people that no one would touch, and he talked to people that no one would talk to. And I've heard people say, you know, I love love Jesus, I just don't like his people. (laughs) I really like Jesus, I just don't care for the way Christians live things out because they don't look like Jesus. They don't act like Jesus. When Jesus was here, he taught us all about the Father. And if you go to the, 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 the triangle slide there, Peyton, this is kind of an illustration that, um, that I picked up and I asked to borrow and that was allowed to. If the larger triangle is God the Father, Yahweh, God the Lord in the Old Testament, perhaps Jesus is the, center, is the, the second triangle that's still connected It's still part of it. And he's the one that showed us and taught us and loved us. And he came to conquer death. He came to die for the sin of all. He came and he he knew, and we'll get into how he knew and what he talked about. He came to resurrect from, to raise from the dead. This is Easter. This is why we're here. That he would be the atonement. He would forgive the sins of the people. No longer would there be any need for animal sacrifice in the temple. He took the punishment that was ours. And he gave us those that embrace this, those that live for him, and he lives through us eternal life. But is that all? Is that where we stop? I think some of us do. This is where we, we get tripped up because we, some of us have placed faith in Jesus. We understand the substitute that he took. He, he, de- he died the death that we deserve. He rose to life and by faith we believe in him. And then 
And then what? What is there after that? There's the Holy Spirit. That's the third triangle. Because God took another step closer to us. He went from a mountain or a temple to a man, and he went from this one man who could only be one place at a time, and he only got within 70 miles of his own hometown. He went from being with us to within us through his Holy Spirit. Do you see the progression? That God was closer and closer and closer and closer to his people. And those of us who embrace this can live with God's presence that was once only reserved for a one building in a city somewhere that only certain people could get to. Now, God has given himself to us freely and we walk around. Those, those who have this belief in this faith, we walk around as temples, a place where heaven and earth meet and God's presence goes wherever we go because he is always with us. What did Jesus say? Before he, after he resurrected, before he ascended to the Father, what did he say? He said, I will be with you always. And how is that supposed to happen if he leaves? Because he gave the Holy Spirit. And what, what prompted me to look through this is how many times Jesus actually predicted this. How many times he took his disciples aside and said, this is, look, this is going to happen. Let me just clue you in here. This is why I have Matthew 16 open in your Bibles or devices. You can look at this. And we're going to plow through some of this scripture. And it's going to make sense here in a minute. In Matthew 16, starting in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This was not taken well by his followers, as, as is illustrated by verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. That had to sting just a little bit. Satan being the adversary, Satan being the one that's in my way, get behind me, Peter, because you don't have in mind the things of God, but just your own ideas. If you flip one uh, page or one chapter... In, verse, in chapter 17, verse 22. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. Now, the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite way to refer, refer to himself, just to let you know. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Fast forward a couple more chapters to chapter 20. Verse 17. Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. 
They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Every time he says this, he gets a little more detail in. And then flip over to chapter 26. Matthew 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. He knows what's coming. He's always known what's coming. And to illustrate that, flip back a a couple, three books or so to the Gospel of John. Chapter 2. John chapter 2, the the beginning of his ministry, verse 19. This is, uh, incidentally, this is after the incident where Jesus goes into the temple courts and he sees a bunch of people in there selling animals. It's a money-changing scam. They're they're just stealing from people. They're robbing them blind in the name of religion. That never happens today, does it? Huh. And he is ticked. And he starts turning these people's tables over. He starts saying, get out of here. This is my father's house. It's a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of robbers. And all of a sudden, he's in trouble with the authorities. And verse 18 of John 2, the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Of course, they're looking around going, um, you're going you're gonna to rebuild all this? I mean, this is acres worth of, of, of land and courtyards and buildings, and their reaction is understandable. Verse 20, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said, and they believed the scripture and the words he'd spoken. All this to say, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. From the very beginning of his ministry, he knew what his mission was. And he knew what he needed to do to help his followers in his absence. So while you're in John, flip back to chapter 14. John 14, verse 12. Yes, verse 12. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. What has Jesus been doing? Well, he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been loving people nobody wants to love, he's been touching people nobody wants to touch, he's been going places where nobody wants to go, and he's been ushering in the kingdom. And he says, if you have faith in me, you'll be doing these things. These are things you'll be doing because I've been doing them, and if you're following me, you're going to do what I have been doing. Makes sense. A disciple does what his teacher does. But then he starts blowing their minds and mine too, for that matter. 
Because he says, he will do even greater things than these. What's greater? How How can we as followers of Jesus do greater things than Jesus did? He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I'll do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Jesus said, I'll do whatever you ask in my name because you're going to go out and do things that I used to do when I was here. And how is it that we will do even greater things than Jesus did? Well, I mentioned before, he was one guy in one place, what happens when millions of his followers do the thing as Jesus did in the name of Jesus? That's a lot more, isn't it? That's a further reach. That's even greater than one man in one time frame doing one man's work. He's prepping them for his departure. And he's promising them the Holy Spirit. Uh, page to chapter 16, verse uh, 5. Now I'm going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? And because I have said these things, you're filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. Who is the counselor? The Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. What could be, I mean, you can imagine the disciples' grief, can't you? For three plus years, they've been following this man. They've they've had their minds blown several times because he's, I mean, the guy's raising people from the dead, for crying out loud. He's healing lepers on the spot. He's doing all kinds of things that only God can do. He's forgiving sin. He's transforming the hardest of criminals. He's showing grace to to the lowest of sinners. And all in the name of love, all in the name of of God's justice and mercy together working in the world. What could be better than that? Why should Jesus tell his disciples, you ought to be glad I'm leaving. It's going to be for your good. You're going to love this. And they're going, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You can't go anywhere. You're the savior of the world. We need you here. Can you imagine being one of the disciples? I don't want what's coming next. I, you know, it's kind of like trying to, um, and I had one young mother to be take issue with me on this on the way out the door in the first service, but it's kind of like trying to convince a baby in the womb that you really, you need to come out. <laughs> now, you know, he's in there going, you know, all the time. Um, thinking he wants out, but if, if you're talking to this little, you know, eight-month-old in the womb, it's really nice in there. It's really warm. I hear mama's heartbeat. I get all the food I want. It's comfortable, you know, And because what happens when the kid is born? It's immediately screaming, agony. Oh, put me back. Put me back. You know, this is terrible. It's bright in here. It's cold. Oh, no. But you try to convince this kid in the womb, you are going to love it out here. Can you even imagine what it's like to have your daddy hold you? You can't imagine that right now. Can you imagine what it's like to look in your mother's face? Can you imagine what it's like 
to walk through a field of flowers, to run into, you know, into the ocean. Can you even imagine what this is going to be? No, 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 I think I'm just going to stay right here in this warm, cozy place. You know, and we're trying to convince this little guy, no, 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 you want to eat bacon. You want to have ice cream. You want to do all these crazy things. It's like, can you even try to imagine as a babe in the womb that life is better out there? And Jesus is trying to tell his disciples, look, I know this is good. I know this has been awesome. This is great being with you guys, but I got to go. Otherwise, the spirit won't come. Otherwise, the kingdom won't be ushered in in its fullness. Otherwise, the church is never going to get launched. Otherwise, it's just going to be us. And yeah, that might be cool. And yeah, that might grow a little bit. But man, you don't have any idea what I have in store for the world through you. There were people that didn't get that either. Jesus spent a lot of time trying to convince people that they should let go of what they thought they liked in order to gain what they didn't know they needed. That a seed has to be planted in the ground and die before it can be raised into a plant that will give a harvest. That you need to be willing as a person who sees a great treasure to sell everything you have and buy that field and dig up the treasure. You need to be a kind of person who will find a pearl in a marketplace and you know what that thing is worth and the merchant doesn't, but it's had a high price on it and you want to be willing to be able to sell everything you have just to buy that one thing because it's that important, it's that valuable, and you need to be the kind of person who will be able to shed your entire comfort zone and your entire existence to trade it in for what God has for you. That's what Jesus is saying. How do you think Jesus endured the cross? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us it was for the joy set before him. He saw past it. He traded all of this comfort for he knew what was going to come. And he was convinced that it was worth the trade. You try to keep this life, you'll lose it. You're willing to give up this life, you will find life. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, the Christian way is different. It's harder and it's easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to just drill the tooth or crown it. I've got to pull it out. Hand over your whole natural self the desires you think are innocent as well as the ones you think are wicked, the whole thing, I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will become yours. Here's the problem a lot of people have with Christianity. They think that it's God trying to make you a better person. They think it's you're trying to not do as many bad things as you do good things. 
and they're missing the entire point. The point is, we need to be a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Lewis goes on, says, The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions, to Christ. But it's far easier than what we're all trying to do instead. For what we're trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves and to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life, yet at the same time be good. We're all trying to let our mind and heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and and hoping, in spite of this, to behave honestly and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. He said, a thistle cannot produce figs. If I'm a field that contains nothing but grass seed, I cannot produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I shall still have to produce grass and no wheat. If I want wheat, the change must go deeper below the surface. I must be plowed up and re-sown. This is the life that Jesus calls people to. Why, why does Jesus spend so much time talking about giving up our lives and us, giving, us being able to receive life from him, to give up our wants, our desires, our flesh, our temptations, our sin, and he just fills us with something better? Because he did it. He, 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 it was, for him, it was no sacrifice at all because he knew the end game. He was assured of it. And he knew it was worth it all. He explains this to his disciples in Mark 10. Real quickly, I'll just read another verse here. Mark 10, verse 29. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children, or fields for me and the gospel, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them, persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. I think we spend so much time trying to keep hold of that which we have built. The things that we find Secure the things that we find safe. We find so much comfort in the things that we have that we can't imagine giving them up to Jesus, trusting him for something better. Something that may not be realized right now, but it's worth the trade. There's a book um, by a guy named Bob Goff called Love Does that I highly recommend you read. And he has a chapter in here called Bigger and Better. He says, when I was a kid, we used to play a game called Bigger and Better. Maybe you've played it. In the game, everyone starts with something of little value, like a dime. And then everybody heads out to the neighborhood to see what they can trade for it. You knock on people's doors, ask if they're willing to trade something for the dime, and you go to the next door with whatever they traded you. The goal is to come back, with a bigger, better thing than you started with. He said, my son Richard set out with a dime a while back. He went to the first door and said, hi, we're playing bigger and better. I have a dime, and I'm hoping to trade up for something better. 
do you have anything you can trade me? And the guy at the door had never heard of the game. Nevertheless, he was immediately in, and he shouted over his shoulder to his wife, Hey, Marge, there's a kid here, and we're playing bigger and better. I love that he said we. What do we have that's bigger and better than a dime? Richard walked away with a mattress. <laughs> Rich went with his buddies to the next door, and they knocked while Rich stood on the porch with his mattress. And the door opened, and his muffled voice could barely be heard as he shouted through the pillow top, asking if this next neighbor would trade with him for something bigger or better than a mattress. A little while later, he skipped away from the house, having traded the mattress for a ping-pong table. Richard wheeled the ping-pong table to the next house and traded up for an elk head. How cool is that? I would have stopped there, but Rich didn't. He kept trading up, and by the end of the night, when Rich had come home, he didn't have a dime or a mattress, a ping-pong table, or an elk head, or the five other things he had traded up. Richard drove home in a pickup truck. No lie. He started with a dime, ended up with a dodge. And then he remembers this quote from C.S. Lewis, where he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Here's my point in bringing this up. I think that many of us have heard and even believed possibly followed through with Jesus' offer to say, I will forgive your sins. I will, I, will, I will give you life, and I will give you eternal life. And many of us have made that confession of faith. We've, we've walked through the baptistry, and we've been plunged into the water, and we've come up new. And then we have said, thank you for my ticket to heaven. I'm going to live the way I want to from now on. I'll see you later we stopped way too short. We thought we traded in for something bigger and better, but actually what we did was we just took the offer, we took the favor, and then we left completely unopened the gift that was given to us. We didn't necessarily trust him to take our entire life and make it something. We just wanted him to fix our sin problem so we could get to heaven someday. And I'm here to say we have, we have cheated ourselves, if that's the case. We have walked away from the bigger and the better and the infinitely more valuable thing that Easter just begins to tell the story of. Bob Goff writes, Jesus isn't requesting a sacrifice from us. He's asking us to play bigger and better, where we give up ourselves and we end up with him. You see, there's way too many people out there who get hung up because they think Jesus wants something from them. When all the time Jesus says, I have so much for you. And all you can, all you can think about is what you have to give up to follow me. Are you serious? Can you not see what I have to give you that you can be enabled to do the things that I have been doing? to heal the world, to bring life to people. The cool thing is, he writes, 
about taking Jesus up on his offer is that whatever controls you doesn't anymore. People who used to be obsessed about becoming famous no longer care whether anybody knows their name. People who used to want power are willing to serve. People who are used to chasing money freely give it away. People who used to beg others for acceptance are now strong enough to give love. And I would add that people who could all they could think about was their own sin and their own shame now are freed up to walk in grace and give it to other people. There's so much more to receive than what we could ever think about giving up. And I, to make this a little more real, I have something to give you. And to do that, I need um, a little bit of help. I need some, uh, some people up here to help me give money away. Anybody want to do that? These are just ones, don't worry. <laughs> but everybody gets one. Everybody gets a dollar. Just pass those out. Anybody who wants a dollar. No, it doesn't matter if they want one or not. Just give it to them. Because I'm only one guy. And I can only play bigger and better for only so long. But if all of us play bigger and better, you know what can happen. It doesn't matter if you were here first service. You get two dollars, okay? Um, Raise your hand if you didn't get a dollar yet. Help us out. We got some back in the cheap seats. Need a dollar, okay? So here's here's the deal. We're going to put this into practice. I um, in our youth ministry in Indiana way back in the day. We had a kid in our youth group. His name was Doug. And he was one of these gifted kids. And he was really smart and he was very outgoing, very friendly, uh, almost bordering on arrogant. He could get that way. But um, you want to play more? <laughs> um, and he would, um, thank you. He would walk through his high school and he would just walk up to random people and he would go, hey, you got a quarter? And they'd be like, uh, yeah, I think so. Here you go. And he'd say, thanks very much. And he'd walk, he'd walk away. And he would go up to the next person. And he would say, hey, you got a quarter? Uh, yeah. Can I have it? Uh-huh. Sure. Oh, yeah, sure. Here's a quarter. He would do this off and on for weeks at a time and bring home lots of dollars. Just because he would just go up to somebody and say, you got a quarter? He wasn't afraid. I don't know what he did with the money, necessarily. Not the point. My point is, he wasn't afraid to ask people. He probably bought Little Debbie's or something with it. I don't, he, was, he was fond of oatmeal cream pies. I remember that. But here's, here's the thing. When you, when you know you're doing something more than just for yourself, you're more likely to try and attempt more things. And, and when you know that the God who made all things is... <laughs> with you, you're empowered to do more than you thought you could ever do. And you're emboldened to do things that you didn't ever think you could do. And so 
when you take this dollar to your workplace or to your family gathering this afternoon and you say, hey, this crazy preacher guy gave me a dollar and he asked me to go do something with it. Like, do you have anything better than a dollar? You got anything bigger than a dollar? And then we're like, uh, I don't know. How about a dollar fifty? Perfect. I'll take it. Here's your dollar. Give me a dollar fifty. And so obviously you, you 50% return right there. But that's thinking too small, isn't it? We, we have a ministry around here, you may have heard of it, called the Orange Swan Free Store. And, um, you know, there's always a waiting list for things like beds that people don't have anything to sleep on, or uh, dining room tables where they don't have anywhere to eat, or they don't have anything to cook on. They need to cook stove or refrigerator because they don't have any place to put their food. And so what if at the end of a week you had traded up and you had gotten somebody to say, oh, I've, got a, I've got a refrigerator in my garage, I'm not using it, it works. Perfect, we'll pick it up. Tell me when. What if we didn't have a waiting list for stuff like that anymore? What if we could actually stockpile a few things in this new building over here um, that we could use for later? What if, what if maybe you had other things in mind? What if you had a neighbor that you knew needed a little help? You needed, needed a, re- a repair for, the, for her car or something needed done around the house, and, but she needed supplies to do it and she couldn't afford it. What if you traded up and did that? And you were the hands and feet of Jesus. You started with a dollar, but you ended up with 50 because you kept trading up for people until you could get that thing done. It's really just limited to your imagination and your prayers. Because I believe that if all of us, you could do even greater things than these. And the Holy Spirit working in each of us to do the works Jesus did Because I'm telling you, he didn't just come here to fix your sin problem and punch your ticket to heaven. He came so that you would have life and life to the full and be able to practice kingdom building, kingdom work, the stuff he did while he was here. I think there's bigger and better things out there than what we have contented ourselves with. I think there's bigger imaginations to be had than the things that we think, oh, just religion is just you going through motions and you attend this service and you pick up this Bible and you do this and then you do what you want. No, this is not what that is. There's so much more to it. And it's all about grace. Way too many of us think it's all about rules. And holiness is important. But mercy triumphs over judgment and God has given us mercy beyond belief. There will be judgment but mercy he's given in, in loads, in truckloads. So go out and give it. Go out and give mercy. Go out and give generously. Ask people to come along with you. Look, I'm doing this crazy thing called bigger and better. How about you do this with me? You got anybody you know got bigger and better than a 20? Because I, I got a 20 so far. What's bigger and better than a 20? Come on, let's go. Let's do this. And all of a sudden, your life has a little more purpose, has a little more breadth to it than what your daily grind that you can't see past. This is the the victory that we've been given. This is the life that you've been invited to. This is the grace that we can sing about. It's scandalous. It really is. I mean, it it really ought to cost us something more. But Jesus says, just believe and and walk. Believe and, and act. Believe and do as I've equipped you to do.
And if you don't know anything about this, if this is all foreign to your thinking, um, I, I pray that you would um, grab one of us on the way out and say, you know what, what you're saying is, it sounds good, but I don't get it enough to, to really go home today. I need to talk to somebody about it. And I, I would hope that you would be able to do that. Right after service, <clears throat> there's a couple of, uh, of our elders that meet in this classroom right over here, and they pray over the things on the list. There's things that were brought up in our service that they, they immediately pray for. Um, if you've texted uh, a prayer... Good morning. Happy Easter. Um, Easter is a day that's full of traditions. And uh, I think some of our fondest ones are from when we're little kids. Um, We would always color eggs, and then uh, mom and dad would go hide them. And my older sister was like a wizard at finding all of the hidden eggs. And I was like... I don't know if it was my poor vision or just, like, I'm not good at finding things. But her basket is, like, overflowing, and I'd have, like, two. And so being the little brother, I'd, of course, cry about it, and then I would get some of her eggs, and that made me feel better. But um, then you also get, like, that basket first thing in the morning with your candy and toys and whatever and that weird plastic green stuff that you're finding in the carpet, like, six months later. Um But then as you get older, your favorite traditions change, and it becomes lunch. Um, And that's still true. But then I was thinking that Jesus was sort of a non-traditional guy. Um, He would do things that weren't really being done and that would make people sort of uncomfortable. Like when they were going through Samaria and he starts talking to the woman And then he starts talking to everybody in town, and his disciples are like, Jesus, we don't talk to Samaritans. You're sort of making us uncomfortable here. Um, And then there was the time we talked about earlier in the temple where they were selling stuff, and he's like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, oh, Jesus, this is just, this is how we do things. And he's like, well, not anymore. Um, Only a little bit angrier than that. Um. Or like healing people on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees would be like, Jesus, you can't be doing this. And he's like, well, it just did. And this is how it's going to be now. So, um, But I think the most important tradition for us that he came to break was way back before he came, if you wanted to have a relationship with God, there was like a whole book of rules that you'd have to follow and... You'd have to go and talk to the priest, and there'd be an animal, and there'd be lots, I mean, just a lot that you'd have to go through. And he changed all that. And he made it so that if you want a relationship with him, now it's like a sentence. It's believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. And that's it. And for us, I think that's so important. And if you you haven't... uh, done that and had your relationship with God, I would pray that today would be the day that you do that, that you come and talk to somebody and figure out how to get that done. And for those of us that have already, communion is a time where we appreciate 
just exactly what it cost him. Um, the bread represents his body that he gave and that was broken. Um, the juice represents his blood that he shed. And what a great sacrifice he made so that we could be with him and that he could make it easy for us every day to, to have that relationship. And so uh, as we have communion, let's just be thankful for what he has done and what he's allowed us to do. Let's pray. Our dear gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this time that we can come together and we can uh, celebrate the fact that you came and that you made a way for us to, to know you and uh, with your rebirth, you, you gave us a way to, to spend eternity with you. And uh, for that, we are very thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.